The talk tonight is about patience. Uh, And I have a little announcement to make before I give the talk. we would like to encourage you to keep the silence. And I'd like to just go over a few of the ways that we'd like you to keep the silence. And to keep in mind that this is done for us all to really support each other to keep the silence. You know, it's not so easy if you're trying to be deep inside and quiet to have people talking, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be disturbing, uh, it, it can be. So, for example, in work periods, uh, unless it's something that you really have to talk about, to remember that it's not a social time, that it's time to just re- keep the silence and keep the practice going. In work periods, and then with staff, unless, unless you really, it's really clearly re- talk to staff, Uh, to remember that they also have a job to do and your job is to do the practice and not to interact with the staff except when it's needed. So you know that saying of the, the practice getting too loose or too tight, it's been kind of feeling like there's been a getting too loose generally and we'd like to ask you to pull it together a little bit. Uh, Patience. For the long-term view, I think patience is the quality that we need to work on and develop the most in our life. Patience The Pali word is kanti, and it means a deep acceptance, unconditional acceptance, or tolerance. This means tolerance with how things are. And this patience requires a combination of mindfulness and metta. It's a kind of loving awareness itself. It's the foundation for any spiritual practice. It's the key to liberating ourselves. It's patience allows whatever is happening to become workable for us. Even if we're resisting it, we can have patience with resistance. Patience is an aspect of the metta practice, it's a form of metta for ourselves, and it's also one of the ten paramis. The Buddha, uh, as in his previous lifetime, spent lifetimes developing just the quality of patience. We develop a lot of patience on a three-month retreat. Maybe that's all we develop. (laughs) But that's a lot. When we say the phrase, the first phrase, or if you know the first phrase in the tradition of doing the metta practice, may I be free from inner or outer harm, that freedom from inner harm 
in, when we wish that for another or when we wish it for ourselves, there's a deep understanding of the happiness and the peace that comes from being free from the hindrances and the, being free from aversion or free from attachment, free from sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. Being safe and protected means safe from the hindrances, protected from the hindrances. Being able to be mindful and fully experiencing what's happening in the moment but not be identified with what's happening, uh, that's what we're wishing for somebody, to have this ease of well-being that's just able to be in the present moment and open to pleasant and unpleasant experience, just as it is, just as life is happening. So when the hindrances arise and we get lost, that's considered the danger or harm in that phrase. In the Vipassana practice, we're uncovering very slowly the roots of suffering, the roots of the hindrances. On a long retreat, it reminds me of being on an archaeology dig. And if you've ever seen someone on an archaeology dig, when they get to a certain layer, they just have a little brush that's just really carefully and leveling, brushing off each layer. And it's not that, you know, you have this shovel and you're kind of digging up artifacts and breaking everything and ruining everything. That's not (laughs) a very effective way to do an archaeology dig. And we tend to want to kind of pull the roots out, (laughs) the roots of aversion or the roots of attachment, but it's much more like this very fine brushing layer by layer, very light, very... it takes a lot of patience. And to remember that Vipassana is about having no preferences, it's a developing an attention that has no preferences, but until we're fully free, we will have preferences, and the hindrances aren't bad. It's just desire, it's just aversion, it's just that we're not seeing clearly. And say we have had just been lost in a fantasy, and we, we come out of it, if there's judgment about it, we're just adding more aversion onto it. In whatever way that we get lost, if we have aversion, you know, it just adds, <laughs> it's like kicking a horse when it's down. You know, it's so painful, it adds more pain. So we have to know that we're doing the best we can to be in the present moment. There's a little poem by Isa who said, Not yet having become a Buddha, this ancient pine tree, idly dreaming. There's such a deep acceptance of the dreaming. Not yet having become a Buddha, this ancient pine tree, idly dreaming. It's okay. You know, the hindrances are okay. We're uncovering them. We're learning how to work with them. 
if we can't see clearly, if we don't have the strength of mindfulness in a situation, and the hindrances take over, they remind me of uh, the fairy tale about Sleeping Beauty. When she was about 16 years old, a curse that was um, given to her when she was young took over, and she fell asleep. And the whole castle, everybody in the castle fell asleep with her. And then the castle became surrounded by briars, and the briars kept growing and growing thicker and thicker with these thorns. And any of the princes that came in to try to save her would die in the briars. The hindrances are like the briars. It's, it's interesting. It's like we attempt to make an effort to overcome the hindrances, but our own inner world sticks up so many obstacles to inner peace. I saw a saying recently, it's hard to fight an enemy who has outposts in your own head. (laughs) That's how it is. We're so easily fooled by the hindrances. You know, we're suckers for attachment. We're suckers for aversion. So working with the hindrances takes great patience. And after a long retreat, we usually have a sense of what it means to wish, really wish somebody to be free from inner and outer harm. You know, we know what that means those moments when we have the mindfulness and we feel safe and protected with the mindfulness, with seeing clearly. So we're learning not to make enemies out of the hindrances, but to become aware of them. And through that non-judgmental attention, they become workable we become less caught in the content of the thinking that comes with them. And we can learn to see that it's just wanting. It's just aversion. So much of the practice is feeling at home, feeling in the present moment, and then getting lost and then remembering to come back and beginning again, beginning again, beginning again. The patience is in that ability to begin again and begin again. Someone some years ago gave me a quotation from a parent named Kim Stafford who wrote about his little girl. And it's all about... um, patience. I took my little girl to the circus once at the Colosseum on a hot afternoon. By the fountain outside, before the show, she ripped off her shoes and socks to wade, working her way along the square tiled edge, just at the rim of the deep water. Dad, she called, 
I'm going all the way around. Water scattered up. Several mothers turned to me. I could see the question in their faces and in hers. Would I let her go? I nodded. I knew she would fall in. (laughs) She started around, walking the edge with her hands thrust out for balance, just like we do, (laughs) creeping along the first side and wobbling, turning at the corner. Halfway along the second side, water sprayed across her path. She will make it across there, I thought, across the tough place. Then she will fall. Her steps slowed. It was hard to see her footing in the spray. I watched her through the gauze of water. Then, beyond the spray, where her footing was better, she turned to look at me, and she fell. (laughs) She smiled over her shoulder and fell. With a splash, she went down into the pool. Not a swimmer, but a mother near her grabbed and hoisted her out, and she came padding to me across the hot pavement. Her dress left a trail of wet. Her hair streamed down, and her face was bright. She stood stubby tall before me. When I was falling, Dad, I heard my little voice, but it didn't say, be afraid. It said, have fun falling. (laughs) Have fun getting lost. Her eyebrows went up and her mouth clamped into a line of conviction. When I live my life now, when I write, when I enter a hard time, an uncertain way, I want my little voice saying, have fun falling. Have fun tumbling into the changes that rain and root and every pair of wings has to carry out. A secret the wind and lightning and sorrow and love keep making plain. By falling, you find the bottom, and without that, no joy. It's okay to have the hindrances come up. It's okay to get lost. That's what we're doing. We're doing a little archaeology dig and uncovering the roots of our suffering. Liberating ourselves takes patience. The concept of change in regard to spiritual uh, change is interesting. It's like we get on this path of awakening, our spiritual journey. And change, especially with deep psychological patterns or with the deep-seated, rooted hindrances, this change can seem exceptionally slow or agonizingly slow. So we need patience with the hindrances. We need patience with the development of mindfulness, and metta. In regard to how much metta we can feel for ourselves, for example, often we never feel like we've done enough or that we're good enough. Maybe we don't feel smart enough or handsome enough or beautiful enough or 
we might not be the right shape, we might not have had enough metta or mindfulness today, maybe we don't feel like we've had enough clarity. Somehow we have this tendency to feel like we've never done enough or we're not enough. So the mindfulness can help us awaken uh, to developing an unconditional acceptance of how things are in the moment. When I was doing the metta practice, I would do the traditional phrases, but when I would hit anything difficult, I would change the phrases to, may I be happy just as I am, or just where I am. May I be peaceful with whatever's happening. May I love myself completely. Because I I would have to change the phrases to be able to connect with the difficulty I was having right then and to know that it was okay. Patience is a form of metaphor ourselves. It's accepting where we are right now. Impatience is a reaching out into the future. It's a form of aversion. It's not being content where we are in the moment. And it's not allowing to allowing what's deep inside to become visible. Impatience is getting ahead of ourselves and moving outside of ourselves. For many years in my practice with Upandita, and I sat with him uh, every time he was coming out of Burma, uh, he had a way of teaching where you weren't allowed to leave the grounds. Uh, You weren't allowed to go for walks, and you were just to stay in the, the little area around IMS. And for all the years that I had sat with him, it wasn't a problem for me at all. I just liked, you know, walking outside around here, inside. And then in 1991, two years ago, something really switched for me, and it was really hard for me to accept. I just had so much of this difficult emotion coming up. I couldn't, I couldn't stay on the grounds. And so I started walking on the road. <laughs> I started doing walking meditation on the road. And it seemed like everyone else in the retreat was staying inside the bounds of the course. And I could see the people who were having a hard time. They would walk on the wall. you know. <laughs> and here I was outside the wall, and I kept thinking, oh, you're really in good shape, Michelle. You're, you can't even walk on the wall. And so then I started going down to the field. Uh, and the, I had this incredible desire after about a week to see these lady slippers that I knew were growing on Haas Hill Road. And for the years of my practice before Upandita, every spring I would go visit these lady slippers when I was doing practice here. And it's amazing, there's there's over about 150 of them that flower at the end of May here. And they're an endangered flower and a flower that I love dearly. So about, about a week into the retreat I kept saying, when the lady slippers bloom, if you're not in a different place, you can go see them. (laughs) 
And so I kept waiting and waiting and seeing if it would change and seeing if it would change and I'd stay in the ground, stay in the ground. And May 31st, (laughs) I went to the lady slippers and it was just the totally right thing to do. You know, it was just what I needed to do was to open up and to go for a walk. Uh, And it was so interesting to see how I just didn't want to go with the change in my practice. And that when I would listen and go with the change and be patient, it was fine. You know, it was only like a pause hill road. (laughs) It wasn't like I was doing something horrible. But it was so interesting to see how impatient I was with myself. It took me a month to decide to go for a walk. (laughs) You can see why I stress gentleness. One of the things that I loved about doing the metta practice was this emphasis on going to what's easy. You know, just backing off. And the the way the metta practice is done is is a form of having metta for ourselves. So if we start with ourself and we can't do it, you go to a benefactor or a dear friend. If you go to a benefactor and it doesn't work, you move to a dear friend or back to yourself. The breaking down of the barrier isn't done with a battering ram. It's done through this incredible gentleness where you try to go to the place where the metta is and not where it's not. And then when you do have enough strength of the metta to go to a difficult person, you go. And it's by the force of the metta that that barrier breaks down not by anything else. And then if it gets difficult, you move back to what's easy and develop the metta again. The backing off in the metta is a form of love for ourselves. It's a gathering of our resources, of our strength. And when we're strong enough, then we open to what is difficult When I first did the metta practice, I had started with two monks, with Upandita and a monk named Upanyadipa. For a week I worked with both, and then uh, Upandita wanted me to work just with him. And I was enjoying working with Upanyadipa. And I came in for an interview, my last interview with him, and I had just had this really wonderful metta sitting where I was feeling rapturous and happy and I just felt all this metta Uh, and I was describing it and I was just describing this wonderful happiness to him and he said what would have happened if someone had come in right at that moment and hit you over the head And, and I said Probably a lot of aversion, you know, and we both burst out laughing. (laughs) It still cracks me up because I was just, you know, thinking I had just hit all this meta and how great I was, you know, and he just sort of pointed out that maybe I had a little bit more to go. (laughs) Maybe that that I wasn't finished yet uh, with the (laughs) meta. It was a nice way for me to leave him. (laughs) <laughs> hmm. 
When I was first doing the metta practice, when I would start doing the phrase, may I be happy, this little voice would say, fat chance on that one. (laughs) And then I'd say, may I be peaceful, and the voice would go, yeah, right. (laughs) And, And then when I would get to, may I be strong and healthy of body. You know, I have this body that breaks down almost constantly. <laughs> and I'd say, this voice would say, fat chance on that, whatever happening. <laughs> and it was so interesting <laughs> to watch this cynical voice come when I started the practice. And then I would start doing the 11 benefits, you know, sleep easily, you know, pleasant dreams, uh, on and on, you know, Davis and everyone will love you, etc., etc. And I started having these nightmares. <laughs> and every, for two weeks of doing the metta practice, I had the most intense nightmares I've ever had in my life. You know, and I would start doing the benefits, and I'd get to pleasant dreams, and I'd say, who made this all this stuff? <laughs> this is a bad joke. But then over time, you know, <laughs> with patience, the nightmares stopped, the cynical voices, you know, stopped. Uh, so it's interesting to see what happens if you just keep going with these practices that we're doing. Sometimes we have to wait. You know, we back off and wait two minutes <coughs> or two weeks or five years. You know, it's okay, <laughs> however long it takes. Backing off is a form of love for ourselves. So we need patience with the hindrances or the obstacles our own inner world sets up to inner peace. And we need patience with the development of metta or this unconditional acceptance And we need patience with the deep psychological patterns that often surface for us on retreat, or they become visible at some point. And most everyone has some kind of karmic knot or knots or psychological patterns. And some of them are very, very deep. It could be fear of rejection or seeking approval, or the fear of death, or it might be a fear of betrayal or being hurt, uh, or it can be that deep longing for union, fear of anger or sickness. Most of us have at least one, I call it like an Achilles heel or karmic knot that we come into this lifetime with. It's one of our, it's our teacher this lifetime. And usually we have very little acceptance of these patterns. It's like um, they are something that are around for a very long time, but when they come up, we have this incredible desire to be rid of them. We think freedom or liberation is getting rid of these karmic knots or deep psychological patterns. And actually, if these are deep, they, they're, uh, they're like ent- entangling a, a knot. You know, it's not easy to entangle a knot. It takes a lot of 
slow, delicate patience. So the idea is that we're not getting rid of them necessarily, but we strengthen the mindfulness and we strengthen the equanimity and the non-identification with them. Or we strengthen the metta or the compassion for ourselves. So that when the pattern emerges, say it's fear of rejection or whatever, when it comes up, when it becomes visible in this archaeology dig, we can allow it and accept that it has appeared because it's there. If we can learn to accept that it's there, it's possible to experience it. And we encourage people to experience these a lot as physical sensations, to be careful of just staying in the head and getting involved in thinking about it, but really grounding the attention with whatever physical sensations you can find in the body. And then it's learning to let this experience come and go, to let it live itself out, arise and pass, or to send compassion or metta to ourselves. And if this is a karmic knot, if we do this once in a day, it'll be a huge accomplishment to overcome a resistance to that karmic knot. If we try to dig it out with a shovel, if we try to get to the bottom of it and resolve it and get rid of it, with the metta or vipassana practice, uh, what that is doing is reinforcing aversion. We often think that we're getting a lot of good work done, but actually what we're doing is we're just reinforcing the I, or aversion, not wisdom. Wisdom is learning how to work with it, not to get rid of it. And the practice is about a very deep freedom. Even if something seems like it's disappeared and it comes back five years later, it doesn't mean that we're not free. It just means that it appeared. And we do this with physical pain, we do it with emotional pain. We think that we're going to get rid of that pain, the meat hook in the shoulder, you know, or the lower back pain, or the fear of rejection. And the practice is about freedom, not aversion. It's learning to work with it. If it disappears, great. If it comes back, great. It's okay. Some of these patterns will take a long time to learn to work with. They take enormous strength of mindfulness and metta to have that deep acceptance of them because they tend to be painful. The metta and the mindfulness, they go to the core of who we are. They go to the core of ourselves. And because of that, it lifts this stuff. You know, it, the process is one of, of lifting this material, not of repressing it or getting rid of it. That's how freedom happens. We need patience with learning to disidentify with these karmic knots. One of the ways that disidentification happens is by seeing clearly that the experience is insubstantial itself. 
So the practice we get of being with the breath and seeing that the breath is insubstantial and just air element or fire element, these disappearing particles. And then we get practice with seeing a thought be, be very insubstantial. We, if you look directly at a thought or an image, you know, it's so, you know, it's such a bubble. It's so nothing. And then over time we get to get the experience of learning to be with fear and be with the physical sensations and see how insubstantial they are. So when we see that they're just, you know, these disappearing particles, we don't have to try hard to disidentify. We don't have to because we see that nothing is there. (laughs) You know, we don't have to let go if we see that they're insubstantial. At those times, it's easy. When they seem like the total universe, when we, see, when we feel like they're everything and they're mine, uh, that's when we need the patience. We need to find something that is different than that. We try to find an anchor, like the breath or a sound or something to help us get a perspective outside of that solidity of the experience so that we can look at it and not be drowning in it or lost in it. If a karmic knot disappears and comes back, uh, the resistance to it means that we're not really free. It means that there's still aversion to it and we work with the aversion again. Over time, we see that a human life, you know, the human existence is thoughts coming and going, body sensations coming and going, emotions coming and going. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral. And that it's all okay. It's all workable. There's nothing to get rid of, even karmic knots. Many years ago, on one of my first staff retreats, uh, I had to leave the retreat in the middle, and I bought chocolate for all the uh, staff and some of the teachers. I bought chocolate for everybody, and it was a lot of chocolate. I mean, it was a lot of chocolate. And I came back to my room, and I sat down with the chocolate, and I realized I was going to eat it all. <laughs> I just had that sick feeling like, oh, oh no. And <laughs> I, had this, I had this hidden pattern. After my mother died when I was 13, this pattern of, of kind of anxious eating developed. And I would kind of sneak food when I was anxious. When no one was around, I would kind of really hurriedly and standing up, just kind of (laughs) shovel food in. Uh, (laughs) And that pattern would disappear when I came on my first retreats. And I loved it. I just loved being on retreat because I felt like I was free of the pattern. But then I'd come out again, (laughs) and I would start doing that eating whenever I was anxious. So... Here I was on retreat, and I thought the pattern would disappear again, but it appeared, 
so I knew I was going to eat all the chocolate. That was clear to me. So I decided to make a bargain with myself. And I said, okay, you can do this, but I want you to be mindful of this. <laughs> so I sat down and I ate every piece. I mean, it was like an hour and a half of chocolate. And I would, you know, look at the chocolate, seeing, seeing, reaching, lifting, opening, and I would just note sweet, 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 pleasant, pleasant. <laughs> enjoying, enjoying, enjoying. <laughs> Swallowing, wanting. <laughs> Reaching, lifting, lifting. I just did that over and over again. And I would watch that, those moments of sweetness and pleasure and then that fall into sadness and yearning and wanting over and over. And I just really got to be accepting of it. You know, the whole thing. It was this huge revolution for me because I had such aversion to that pattern. I was, I mean, if anyone knew about it, I would be mortified and embarrassed. So then what I noticed over the years was that I lost the resistance to the pattern. And when I would notice it happening, I would say, oh, anxious. Okay, let's sit down. You know, I would do the same thing. Let's just be mindful of it. <laughs> shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Yeah. <laughs> and it just slowly dropped away. And, and every once in a while, when I'm packing, you know, when I have to pack, I notice that the pattern comes. And, I th and at this point, it's like so, you know, it hardly ever comes, I think, oh, my old friend. And I, I think, oh, I'm, I must be really anxious. Oh, let's go eat. <laughs> now, instead of this aversion to it, it's sort of fun now to have it come up. <laughs> yeah, this was a really painful pattern for me. I mean, really pa painful. And to switch, to see it switch. And this wasn't switching over one year. To really see it switch over five, six years. It was really a teacher for me in terms of just trusting the mindfulness, just having patience with a pattern and not judging myself for it and allowing it. So we need patience with hindrances, patience with metta, the development of metta, Patience with uh, the deep psychological karmic knots that appear when we're doing the practice. And we need patience with the process of liberating ourselves, you know, the actual process of the development of wisdom. There's a quotation from a woman named Ruth Sanford that went to South Africa some years ago before they lifted the laws about apartheid. And she was asked to come, she's a psychologist, and was asked to come to help uh, different groups try to dialogue with each other about the difficulties in that apartheid system and trying to change it. And she said, after she was there. A compassionate person, seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon, 
and wanting to help, very gently loosen the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon, and fluttered about, but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. That really touched me a lot, where we all spend a lot of time as caterpillars and in our cocoon, and sometimes as butterflies. And I think we think that it's a linear process, so that we might struggle a bit and then go in the cocoon, and then forever we're butterflies. But if we're growing in the practice, you know, it's not like that. It's, it, we go through a process of being a caterpillar, then a cocoon, then we fly, then we die. You know, it's time for growth, for change, and there's new layers that emerge, and then we're groveling around, chewing, 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 you know, eating, eating. You know, caterpillars just kind of, you know, they're worms, and they're very grounded. And they, <laughs> they just crawl along the ground or on these leaves. And we don't, we don't like to identify with that. You know, who likes to identify with a caterpillar? But we, you know, we spend a lot of time like that, and it's okay. It's just being a worm. <laughs> and then it's time to send all the energy deep inside. You know, a retreat is like that. We're on a, we're, it's like being in a cocoon, protected. And sometimes we tend to stay in the cocoon maybe too long, or maybe, you know, we come out too quickly. And we have to get a sense of the timing or the ripening of the practice. And if we come out of the cocoon, nobody can do it for us. We have to do it ourselves. If somebody opens up the cocoon before we're ready, they're really harming us. They're not helping us. It might look compassionate, but it isn't compassionate. It's called idiot compassion. because the person or the being won't be able to fly, they won't be able to live, they, they haven't liberated themselves. We especially need patience with resistance itself, the times that we're not able to open. You know, the times when we really can't let go of content. It's so interesting, we know you know, we know it would work if we could, you know, but the mind just chatter, 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 and it starts churning. And it's possible to just lay low and let it live itself out if it's churning and we can't let it go. It's okay. It'll change. If we can't open to what's happening, uh, that's the time that we're really needing to be in the cocoon, and it's okay. 
you know, the, the butterfly is like a peak experience. It's like when the mindfulness energy concentration are strong. And we like that, and it's wonderful, and we feel liberated. It's great. And then if we're growing, you know, we'll shift again to the cocoon and the worm. <laughs> worm cocoon, <laughs> hopefully in that order. <laughs> There's a poet that I love a lot named Galway Cannell, and one of his first books was called The Book of Nightmares. <laughs> it's a dukkha book. <laughs> and this poem is about, a, it's about his daughter's birth. The black eye opens. The pupil, drused with black hair, stops. The chakra on top of the brain throbs a long moment in world light, and she skids out on her face into light. This peck of stunned flesh, clotted with celestial cheesiness, glowing with the astral violet of the underlife. And as they cut her tie to the darkness, she dies a moment turns blue as a coal, the limbs shaking as the memories rush out of them. When they hang her up by the feet, she sucks air, screams her first song, and turns rose, the slow, beating, featherless arms, already clutching at the emptiness. the slow, beating, featherless arms already clutching at the emptiness. You know, he really gets that birth into separation, into dukkha. It's, it's the core of our karmic knot. You know, our featherless arms searching for, longing for union. And it takes patience to see through this illusion of separateness. You know, we're developing the mindfulness that sees clearly that we're not a separate self. Instead of having that union with, a, with, with chocolate, you know, that sense of we lose a separation, you know, with something pleasurable, uh, that's why we get hooked because we lose that sense of being separate in that moment of union with the pleasure. That's why desire sometimes feels better than aversion, because (laughs) at least you're sort of having a union with something pleasurable instead of something unpleasant. I always wondered if greedy types have more fun. So how much of our lives are we clutching at the emptiness instead of seeing it and letting go? The spiritual journey is a birth process. It's a birth process of wisdom, birthing understanding and birthing metta, and then a ripening process. 
So there's the birthing, but also the maturing and the ripening of metta, the ripening of understanding. You know, you know when you have those times in practice where you feel like, oh, I got it, and you're doing so well, and then you get lost again, and you think, what happened? You know, how can this happen? And, and, but we're ripening the understanding. It just doesn't happen once, and then we have it forever. It takes time to ripen. When I first moved to Hawaii, Stephen and Chandra and I planted a mango tree in the backyard. And the first five years that it was growing, it, it actually it didn't seem like it was growing. It just seemed to stay the same way and never grew. And I'd water it and throw fertilizer on it and yell at it and love it. And just didn't grow and didn't grow and didn't grow. And then it started growing a little bit, little bit, little bit. And then the last few years, you know, it's just, well, Hawaii, you can imagine, it's huge. You know, it's three times the size I am. It had baby mangoes last year, but they didn't become mangoes. They sort of fell off. I'm hoping this year they might make it. Uh, But it's interesting to have a sense of the ripening of the spiritual journey like the growing of a tree. And that can give us a little more sense of the patience it takes to develop mindfulness. It's a slow, maturing process. How much time do we spend uh, through a lifetime with a tree? Because if we do have that sense of staying with something like the growing of a tree, we'll get a sense of how the practice grows. It'll appear to be slow at first, but then suddenly it'll feel like it's accelerating and growing very quickly. When we plant a seed, all we can do is make that commitment to do it. We take a risk. You know, you go for it and do it, but then we have to let go of control and just do the best we can. Someone planted uh, grass seed all all around the house that's where Steve and I are living now. And the soil is really um, soft. And if you walk on it, it leaves the imprint there totally. You know, not like the hard earth that's older. It's so delicate and fragile. When I saw those seeds in this earth, you know, they didn't even dig anything up. They just threw the, the seeds on. And it's so amazing, you know, just waiting for the sun and the rain and, the, and the, just the process of seeing these little teeny green sprouts come out of this dark earth. Or watch a tree. Nature can teach us the sense of making the commitment to do the journey and then do the best you can and then we let go of control. and see what happens. Eventually, it'll become interesting.
ultimately, besides having patience with hindrances or the development of metta or with psychological karmic knots or with the development of wisdom, we really need patience with life itself. Those uh, characteristics of existence, of change, of this amazing change, and that we never know what's going to happen. Uh, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji said that we can plan and plan for a hundred years and still we never know what's going to happen. How much planning do we do? You know, you see it on a retreat, just all that planning. And then, really, (laughs) you can't control it. You don't know what really is going to happen. We can't control how much metta we'll have or how much mindfulness we'll have. We can't control this November weather. We're back into the dark, cold rain. We can't control growing old or whatever. (laughs) That's why I love the definition of patience because it's all about accepting the change and that we never know what's going to happen. And this patience makes life workable. It helps us to really accept the human life fully and learn to work with it and to be free in it. We can't be free in it. We can't learn to play in it until we accept it. One of the teachers that taught me the most about patience is Upandita. He's not the kind of teacher that gives in to wanting to be liked. It doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to have any um, desire to be liked. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> he doesn't seem to be, you know, motivated uh, on the personality level to have people like him. It's like he just sort of does what he does and. Uh, it's really interesting to, for me over the years where I would watch students with him, you know, because you can usually hear about ten interviews in front of you, so you get to hear the doors open and they're not, the interviews aren't private. And I would hear yogis, especially those that I knew over the years, uh, just push them and push them and push them for a new instruction or to tell them, where they were in the practice, or, you know, amazing. You know, it used to just amaze me that people would do this with him. And he just, immovable, nothing. In fact, the more you push, the more he would just wait and wait and wait. And he has this incredible ability to wait. And it's like, when I first was doing the metta practice, for example, I didn't know anything about it. And every day I'd go in, and he had me on the benefactor for a month, you know, and a month is a long time, you know, and I kept thinking, God, I'm really doing bad at this, you know, he must be punishing me, you know, he doesn't really like me, you know, all of these things, you know, and 
he just waited until it was time to move. Uh, and it's like that in the Vipassana practice. He doesn't give a new instruction until you know he feels that you're ripe. And his idea of ripeness is very much like an apple ripening on a tree, not how quickly a grass seed comes up. Or you know, it's it's it's. I remember so many times where he'd give me an instruction, and then with this little twinkle in his eye, he'd say, "Digest this." <laughs> and I'd always walk out thinking, <laughs> five years, two months, I wonder how long it's, I'm going to be with this one, you know. And it was great over the years to just let go of control and just wait. In that process of watching myself and others go through that with him, I had a real sense of us all ripening in our own time and the uniqueness of our, each of our journey. You know, we're all very different and there's a tendency to compare with each other. If you just watch people in the dining room and see how some people kind of flit through it, other people walk slowly. You know, we all have our, our character, our, our, our part that we play on the three-month retreat. And it's so wonderful <laughs> to see how we're all very unique in the way that we're doing it. And it's so easy to have judgment or to compare. But each of us, the journey is unique for us. And we need to have patience for where we are. And if we have that patience, the practice just ripens on its own. If we get out of the way, it happens. All we need to do is begin again, begin again, begin again. I'd like to end this talk on patience with a quotation from a book called Disturbing the Peace by Vaclav Havel, who became um, the head president of Czechoslovakia. As I understand it, spiritual renewal, I once called it an existential revolution, is not something that one day will drop out of heaven into our laps or be ushered in by a new Messiah. It is a task that confronts us all every moment of our existence. We all can and must do something about it and we can do it here and now. No one else can do it for us, and therefore we can't wait for anyone else. I could point to a great deal of evidence to show that this is already going on. Aren't there a lot of people in the world who aren't apathetic yet and are trying to do something about it? Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.